Welcome to the Fired Coaches Podcast with host Marcus Weger. Each episode, we take a detailed look into the trials and tribulations that college coaches had to go through in their career, reflecting on what matters most. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and follow us on Twitter at Fired Coaches Pod. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. Episode number 31 of the Fired Coaches podcast. Tonight we have a special guest. Uh, we don't have a coach, uh, but we have a guy who I consider the original beat reporter of the NBA. Spent much time at uh, the New York Post, TBS, TNT, NBA TV, the NBA and NBC, which I think uh, a lot of people remember him from, especially myself. He was inducted into the New York City's Basketball Hall of Fame in a 2009, the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. Tonight we have Peter Vesey joining us. Peter, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. You'll regret it, but okay. <laughs> we'll jump right into it. Uh, growing up, I know you played a lot of basketball at Rucker Park. You played, a, if I'm not mistaken, a year at Hofstra. And I wanted to ask, um, you know, by way of you becoming a journalist, do you think that helped you, you know, kind of having that basketball background, do you think that helped you within the basketball world kind of develop those relationships and, and connections and kind of trust being that, you know, you could hold your own on the court as well? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, I only played six months. I, I left after the first semester. It was my freshman year at Hofstra, just, just to make things correct. And I left because I, well, I left before they asked me to leave, actually. But, but, I, but I, uh, I, I was offered a full-time job at the New York Daily News, which you, you didn't mention. But I started at the News and worked 14 years there as a statistician in the sports department. And then I went to the Post. Uh, after that, but um, and the two years out in the army in uh, from sixty five to sixty seven, but I, I I do believe it. I, I got better as a player as uh, as life went on, and um, I I feel that yeah my my uh, they they could see that I that I first of all I showed up for uh, events in Harlem that got me really well uh, situated with the black community. Um, before anybody, I mean, there was a book already written about it, you know, uh, about about the Rucker tournament. But I went in there with a team actually in '71, and uh, played, coached, organized. That was Julius Irving coming out of college after his junior year at UMass, and uh, we we had a loaded team. I, I recruited a lot of the Nets, mostly ABA players, um, a lot of ex-college players, and we were loaded, and and we didn't even win the first year. Uh, Nate Archibald's team beat us. He, he was loaded too. They had Austin Carr and Ron Behagen and uh, Jim Brewer, and they 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 were loaded. But um, so so being up there for four summers as I was covering the ABA, and then I switched to the NBA in '74, uh, and uh, that really helped me. I mean, I've said it many many times without. Without the ABA and without the Rucker, uh, I would have gone nowhere. But I, I did put in the time, and, and I loved every minute up there. I never, never once had a problem in Harlem. I came back in the early 80s for two years with a whole different team, and uh, with Louis Orr and Sam Worthen, who you probably know from Marquette. And, um, you know, we, we were loaded too, but uh, so we won those two championships. But I never, six years, six summers, not one problem, not even a remote problem. So 
I think that that shows shows you where it was at in those days. And it helped me because those guys, they would pass it on, you know, like Julia Serving would would tell people I was cool and Tiny Archibald would say the same thing and on and on. And I remember the first time I ever met Jordan when he was a rookie, um, I approached him to talk. I'd seen him play in, a, in a, an exhibition game at the Garden before his rookie year. And uh, he was phenomenal, but I didn't get to meet him until a little later. And I, when I approached him, he said, I know who you are, you're Doc's guy. I mean, there That's it good. is. It's a good way to be labeled, right? <laughs> oh yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> that's awesome i know i know in some interviews you've had in the past you talked about playing against you know nba guys i think isaiah thomas larry bird do you have a good story out of any of those um in, in kind of those one-on-one matchups you had with them, some of those guys you know I, I could tell you about the games that i they did fairly well i thought scoring five six points against bird in an 11 game was pretty damn good because he was not fooling around and it was in front of the celtic uh, the whole team after practice, uh, Casey Jones let me practice with the team that, that, that day. And it was in Sacramento after the all-star game in 86, some things you never forget. So, so those kind of things, I thought I did well. I did real well against Isaiah because I played him for the outside shot. I played him in his house. He had a, a, a basketball court <laughs> in his, in his house. And we played three games. I did real well against him because uh, he wasn't a great shooter from outside. But I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you two stories uh, where I didn't play well. So I, I was always on Dick Barnett, who played for the Knicks championship team. He was the backcourt in the backcourt with Walt Frazier when they won it in '69, '70. Uh, so he he was traveling with the team as as an assistant coach. He was Red Holzman's first assistant coach. So we'd be on planes and stuff, and I'd be ragging them about, you know, let's let's play, let's play, let's play. And we lived in the same neighborhood in Manhattan. So one day we arranged to go outdoors to a playground that was right down the street. It was on, it was on Second uh, Avenue and, and 20th, 20th, so yeah, 21st Street. And uh, so he has me down 9-0 and 10 game, and he's got the ball, and uh, I never touched it. <laughs> he scored every time and uh, as he's fading black back uh for his for his 10th 10th attempt uh you know you remember how he shot out you too young i don't know no. too young yeah he'd he kick his legs back when he hit the when he, when he took a jump shot he kicked them backwards so he's, he's in the air basically and he said you know in gary indiana this is what we call a black wash <laughs> and that was it huh 10 nothing 10 nothing and, uh, and then and the other one was I played the Ernie DiGregorio when uh, he was when he was uh, having it was after knee surgery. You know, he had one rookie of the year. He had won the uh, free throw. He was the best free throw shooter that year. I mean, the guy the guy was unbelievable. I covered him in college. You know, one of the greatest passers of all time. Great shooter. But now he has a knee injury and he was never fast to begin with. So he was recovering from the knee injury. They were about to play the Washington Bullets in the playoffs first round. And I went up to cover. And um, after practice, you know, we talked, Let, let's play. Again, I never touched the ball except to take it out of the net and give it back to him. So he, he just toyed with me and, you know, talking smack the whole time. And so, so those were two that, uh, you know, an abject failure. Well, it's always good to hear the, the positive and negatives, right? I mean, live and learn. Right. Well, I, I don't know. 
I don't know what I learned. Ernie and I stay in touch over the years, and he still talks about killing me. And same with Barnett. Barnett's still alive, and uh, he should be in the Hall of Fame, by the way. Dick Barnett, Tennessee A and I, three three championships, and uh, the team is in. He should be in, and he had a great NBA, ABA, ABL career. Jerry West to this day said he was the the best backcourt man he ever played alongside. And, and let's not forget, he played alongside Gail Goodrich. Wow. So, Barnett should be in the Hall of Fame. I know. I mean, I know you've been a big advocate for those guys, you know, of years past and stuff like that. So, it's always good to hear. I mean, again, I'm a big historian in just terms of understanding where the game came from, you know, and, and who was in the past and who played and stuff like that, too. So, I greatly appreciate that. Let's know. Let's, let's stay on that subject, okay? You're from Wisconsin. One of the, 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 the most the most flagrant absentee or conspicuous absentee in the Hall of Fame is who? We're talking Wisconsin. Larry Costello. It's funny you say that. I need to flip around my, uh, my monitor here. Got a, I don't know if you can see that. Got a Larry Costello. Yeah, I see it on the right. Yeah. No. So Larry Costello, you know, not only, not only did he have one of the highest percentages in, in coaching history in the NBA, won a, won a championship. Uh, got to the finals another time. You know, he, he didn't do well in Chicago uh, because, uh, you know, Rod Thorne hired him and he hired him because he thought that uh, he could get the artist Gilmore the ball, but he just didn't have the right players in Chicago. So he didn't last long there, but a great coach and a great player at Niagara. A lot of people I've talked to over the years said he should be in the Hall of Fame as a player. Bob Cousy told me that Nobody played him better defensively than Larry Costello. Uh, came, came out of retirement when uh, in the 67, 67, uh, let's see, let's see if I can get it all right. So he, he had retired one year with Syracuse, then they moved to Philly. And uh, Alex Hannum was the coach. And um, Will Chamberlain is playing. And Alex Hannum talked to his old, his old teammate into coming out of retirement. He starts for the 67 team that winds up winning the championship, one of the best teams ever, but he tears his Achilles during the year. And, and uh, so, so Wally Jones winds up taking his place in the backcourt. Now, how tough is Larry Costello? He only, he only sat out, I, I, I'm gonna do this off the top of my head. I'll say he sat out six weeks. Achilles, Achilles comes back and plays in the playoffs. Not a lot, but played in the playoffs of w- which Philadelphia won. I mean, it, it's, it's unfathomable that he is not in the Hall of Fame. And anyway, if he doesn't get in this next year, we're, we're making a huge push to get him in. You know, you talk to any of his teammates who are still alive. You know, Larry died, I believe, when he was 70 or so. And uh, you talk to Hubie Brown or Frank Layden, who are on those Niagara teams, they will swear to by him to this day. So here you are. They asked me, Wisconsin, you're from Wisconsin. I gave you Wisconsin. There you go. There we go. I appreciate that. You kind of talked about, obviously, the ABA and then transitioning into the NBA with you covering that in the 70s. Can you kind of talk about, just from your perspective as a journalist, how things changed? Obviously, today, we got the internet. We got social media. Everybody's a reporter. But when you came up, I mean, to get your information, obviously you had to grind for it. You had to really get your ins and relationships like you were kind of talking about earlier. How did you 
develop that? How did you get ahead of people? Was it just really outworking people? Did you have just those ins? And, and talk about kind of that just addictive, you know, kind of grind you had for that job. Well, I mean, everything you said is, is part of it. You know, we already went over how I developed a relationship with players. Many of those players became coaches and then became general managers. So it kept moving on. Um, but absolutely worked, worked harder than, than anybody. I was, you know, you said in the beginning that, you know, the first NBA reporter, but I, I was the first NBA columnist in the country. In 1977, when uh, the New York Post gave me that column and told me, you know, you, not the Knicks, not the Nets, you're going to cover the league. And I did. And, and so was, was, not to stop you, but was that labeled the hoop du jour? Is that what that was? It wasn't hoop du jour yet. We, we okay. named it later on hoop du jour. No, it's just inside the NBA. Okay. You know, but when I was at the Daily News, um, I, 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 uh, I tried to do that stuff uh, again, developing relationships. So I'll give you an example. So. Charlie Scott, who just made the Hall of Fame uh, a year or two ago, uh, played for me in the Rucker with, with Julius. And, and so he jumped leagues. He jumped leagues in his second year. He led the league in scoring one year, and then he jumps at the end of the, of the second year to, to the Phoenix Suns. Well, who does he give the story to? Gave it to me. But I'm at, I'm at the Daily News at that time. And the Daily News really did not care that much about the ABA. And, uh, but I still had the story and, uh, and followed it up, actually. I ended up going to Phoenix on my own and really followed it up. And there's a, if I ever write this damn book, uh, there's a tremendous story about the whole thing, about how I, how I went to Phoenix and got into it with Jerry Colangelo, who was the general manager. He tried to serve me a subpoena saying I was an ABA, you know, I worked, I was working for the ABA and stuff like that, blah, blah, a little truth to it, but not, well, you know, you'll have to wait for the book <laughs> if I get it. He tried to serve me a subpoena and, and they wound up giving it to David Wolf, who was sitting next to me. David Wolf wrote foul about Connie Hawkins. And it was at that time that uh, the book had come out and he was all going all over the place. They gave it to David. <laughs> He goes, wait a minute, <laughs> that's Bessie. <laughs> I'm not Bessie, but anyway, so he gave, so he gave me the story, and that's the way it worked. You know, I had so many, so many contacts, and and was willing to put in my time. There was there were many years at the Daily News. I was not a reporter. I was a statistician working on my time covering the Nets in uh, in on Long Island. Uh, you know, that Island Garden was the name of it. And uh, so I put in the time I was willing to do it. I laugh when, you know, people come up, come onto a newspaper and they into a sports department and they expect to to get a beat, you know, immediately. I mean, it took me years. Now, I, 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 I acknowledge I didn't go to college, but whatever. It's all it's all about getting the stories. And I broke some really big ones at the Daily News again. So Julius Irving, when he when he uh, hold, held out. So, so uh, you know, when he was holding out from the Nets, you know, claiming, claiming that they promised to renegotiate his contract if there was a, a merger, um, I, I would work out with him at uh, West Hempstead High School, just me and him working out. I have photos I, I'd show you, but I've never showed anybody those photos of me and him working out. And I'm, I love those photos, but I, I, I'm not going to release them unless I end up writing the book. And then, and then when he's, 
sold, not traded to the 76ers, he gave me the story. And so it was the front page of the New York Daily News. And uh, so it was, it worked like that. But I was on the phones constantly, you know, throughout my, my, my career, building, building sources I could trust. I mean, that's the key. There were several times, at least two times I can think of off the top of my head where I was led astray on purpose by people who had an agenda and that wound up getting sued. But overall, you know, I, I learned lessons that, uh, you know, that paid off for me down the line. Uh, one lesson was if you're going to get sued, make sure you're indemnified by the newspaper. But, but the other thing is not, not to trust people just because they're, they have uh, positions of power or title. One guy who led me astray and got me sued was the commissioner of the ABA at that time. I'm not going to even be able to give you his name because I try to put it out of my mind. But he had a thing. He was the uh, commission. He was the owner of Charlotte, and he got he got the short end of the stick with Billy Cunningham jumping leagues and stuff like that, not getting. And he fed me information on the agent, and it was just bullshit. So. I learned, I learned, man, you better, you better follow up. If it's a big story, you better, you better really follow up closely. And, you know, and I'll give you an example of that. So I, I broke the story on guns in the locker room in, uh, in, in Washington, with, with, with Washington. With Arenas you know, and, and all that. Arenas and Crittenden bringing guns in the locker room. So that was my story. But we had it, I had it two weeks before we went with it. And I told my newspaper, I said, my editor, I said, look, this is, this is too big a story for me to try to pin down on my own. You're going to have to put reporters up front of the paper to help me. And, and, and that's what happened. They, they, had, they, sent, they had their Washington guy. You know, he was working on it. We had two guys, you know, in the front of the paper, reporters working on it. And then two weeks, you know, we came out with the story. And, uh, and even at that, even with that, um, you know, I, I, I don't mind admitting that we got certain things wrong, but they weren't, they weren't big things. They were small things. Um, and, you know, denials, denials, denials from everybody, you know, Arenas was going to sue me, you know, Crittenden's agent said it was bullshit, you know, all that stuff. Everything that we had was true. Everything. In fact, we, I was the only one that said Crittenden had a gun that he brought in his own gun. And uh, the league, the league denied it. The league swore up and down it was not true. Ernie Grunfeld, the uh, GM president at the time, he was denying it to the league back. He had a gun. It turned out, you know, in court that came out. And what happened to Critton? He wound up killing somebody in Atlanta in the drive-by, and he's in jail to this day. So anyway, that, that was a huge story, but I needed help on that for sure. How different do you think things are in today's world, again, with everybody being a reporter per se, of getting that, those details down and really you know, just confirming stories? You know, because again, there's so many people out there that say they have a source, but really, do you think it's different or do you think it's the same thing of just going about your process and getting to the people you trust? You know, I, I really don't, I can't tell you, uh, you know, who's right and who's wrong, you know, only by what happens eventually. But you know, I, I, I maintain that I came back and worked for Patreon a couple of years ago for like 18 months. And I broke two, two very big stories. 
Uh, one was LeBron. I guaranteed that LeBron was going to join the Lakers the following September. I did it a year in advance, tw- 10 months in advance. And everybody said, bullshit. Yeah, well, he's a, he became a Laker. And I also had a story that um, I'm going to get to my point, but I had a story that the Lakers had tampered with uh, Paul, Paul George. George. And that was my story. And they got fined five hundred thousand dollars. As it turned out, they should have got they should have gotten a draft pick or two taken away from them. But whatever. I always told people when I came back, they said you're never going to be able to break stories like you did before because everybody's on a timeline. You know, you you you'll have it one minute, and then you know Woj will swear he had it first, or he'll have it two minutes later, or or the opposite, whatever. Um, and I said no. I said, I, I know I can still break stories that nobody's going to have way in advance. And they're gonna, it's going to take them a long time to figure out what's going on. They never figured out the LeBron thing, uh, although, you know, people swore it was not true, but they didn't have anything to back it up. And the people out in L.A. swore the tampering thing wasn't true. So that, that, anyway, my point is, is that you can still break stories if you have the sources. I, I really wonder, you know, like. A lot of these writers seem to have seem to be beholden to uh, to management and to agents. And I think nothing, nothing proves that more than what happened yesterday in New Orleans when management uh, revealed, disclosed that uh, Williamson had broken his foot right after the season on the court. That now that didn't come out at all until they announced it yesterday. Now, if I'm if I'm an editor, you know, I'm saying, like, what the hell happened here? You know, wh- what were you guys doing? You guys swear, you know, Woj? What happened to Woj? I know, I know that's one of his big sources, you know, the general manager of, of uh, New Orleans. You know, obviously, you know, he, he probably did know and didn't print it, didn't go with it on ESPN. So I'm alleging that. But, but um you know, where, where were these guys, all these guys who were supposedly great reporters? That, that I'm telling you, if I, were, if I were writing, that would have never gotten by me. Not, not a million years. Because somebody that I was talking to would have told me about it. Can you touch on, I believe I read about um, the Sprewell story with Carlissimo back in December of 97. And you found out about that in the last hour before, before you had to go to print, basically. And yes. how, how were you able to just, I mean, I know that was kind of the, the realm and the world you lived in where you know, breaking news and trying to get information out. But how were you able to flip things around like that so quickly? Not easy because I'm not a fast writer at all. But in that case, you know, you get so amped up. And all that day, and I've told this story before, but, I, you know, I, as far as I can remember now. So all that day I'm calling around. Every day I'm calling around trying to find out the latest stuff that I can get into the column for the next day. That day, there was a lot of talk about Sprewell being traded. And so I was calling around. He had gotten into it a lot with, with uh, the coach, Carlos Simo. And uh, so he was a problem. We knew that. And um, I'm calling around, calling around. And finally, somebody tipped me off. They said, you should, you should call out to the Warriors. Something big has happened. And uh, it was a league source. And so I called, I called an, a player who, who played for them, an ex-player, who had played for the Warriors and uh, told him what, what, just what I told you, and asked him if he could call somebody who would know what that thing is. He did. He called me back. He told me. 
And now I have a hell of a story. And so I did, I had to write it within an hour. Um, I told my editor what I had, so they're waiting for it. I mean, player, player not only strangles coach once, he came back and strangled him a second time. And um, so that, that was huge. And I also had a few things that I had on the side on Spreewell, fights that he had gotten into with players on the team. I just, I just kept that on the side, not knowing when I could use it or if I would ever use it. And I used that in the story and everything that I was given by that ex-player who got it from somebody on the team who was in the gym was true. Not one thing, not one thing. The New York Times tried to come up with stuff. This guy Wise tried to come up with stuff that had happened. It was bullshit. Nothing, nothing had happened. He was wrong. So I was really proud of, of that day. And, uh, you know, it's amazing, though. I. I don't, I don't think my editor um, or anybody at the paper ever said, hey, good job. It was kind of expected, you know, like- It was almost like, what, what, what's the next big thing you can get? Yeah, right, 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 right. And the next big thing was that I got a, a one-on-one interview with Spreewell. He came into to New York City to, uh, uh, to be, in the, be with the union people who were trying to fight it and stuff. And I wound up getting a one-on-one interview with him not only for NBC, who I was working for at the time, but for the Post. And, uh, you know, Spreewell, Spreewell tried to, Spreewell wanted to talk to me alone. And the union guy, the union executive, uh, I can't think of his name offhand, but who was in Billy Hunter, Billy Hunter said, no way, that's not happening. And, you know, place was packed, but he wanted to get in a room with me alone. And I said, okay, I want it. So, he, we got it. We got a loan. And uh, at first, he's trying to bogart me, you know, telling me it was bullshit. You know, what you heard is bullshit. And I said, hey, you could try it with somebody else. But <laughs> that was my story. So I know I got the truth. And, you know, he ended up he ended up being, being real good about it. Got an unbelievable interview. And, uh, you know, we ended up becoming friends. And he lives in Milwaukee, doesn't he? Yeah, originally from Milwaukee. So I don't know. I don't know if he's back there, but uh, yeah, originally from there. Yeah, I mean, we became friends. I, there's no question. And, you know, Calissimo, I went after Calissimo in my column. You know, I, I, I know I know why Sprewell went after him because uh, Carlissimo used to belittle the players and Sprewell wasn't going to take it and it just went too far one day and he went after him. And so I, I went after Carlissimo as well. And, um, and then, you know, he lost his job and... Uh, a few years later, I can't tell you how long afterward, but he was out of the league and NBC was relying on me a lot for uh, who they should hire to be in the studio with me. And I recommended Carlissimo and they hired him. And, you know, that's never come out that that that, that happened. But PJ, thank because it got him back in the league. And then then he became an assistant coach and he got another head job. You know, and he's still on TV. I think he's still on TV for ESPN. So it's amazing how things work out. So you talked about that column, and I think I saw somewhere online, I believe it was maybe Mark Stein in an interview, where he talked about getting that, I think, through a fax machine in the 90s was kind of the way that some of that information was disseminated with the hoop du jour. To me, it kind of reminded me of like, you know, Seth Godin and his email newsletter and how long it's been going on. Like at that time, that fax had to be, you know, really the Bible of what you were kind of finding out about league news and information. And, you know, in terms of obviously you wanted quality, but when you're talking about, you're, you're talking to all these people and you're picking up all these little bits of information, how did you decide what kind of made that column and what maybe wasn't as important or had to wait down the road? 
Well, I always tried to to go with everything that was newsworthy immediately because any time that I didn't, I ended up getting screwed, screwed myself. But I want I want to ask you for a name. So who who's the guy who works for Fox? The loudmouth that works for Fox with uh, the football player. He came over from ESPN. He used to work with uh, Stephen A. The Skip Bayless and Shannon Sharp show. Skip Bayless. All right. So Skip Bayless. I got to give him his. I got to give him his due. Skip Bayless is the first guy that ever came up with that fax idea. He was doing it. I, I don't know, maybe for football, maybe for everything. I can't remember, but he was doing it. And I called him and asked him about it, as I recall. But whatever it is, I copied it. And, and so I did it with basketball. And I, what it was, it was, it was the post column, but then I would expand it by half because I, I had an awful lot of info and I was able to, you know, the post gave me an awful lot of room in those days. They gave me, you know, if I wanted 45 inches, they would give it to me. When I went to USA Today, they, they paid me a lot of money and they said, well, you have 18 inches. I said, wait, he just, he just recruited me and you're going to give me 18 inches? I'm the highest paid guy on your staff? And that, oh my God. So, uh, but the post, the post would give me 45, but that wasn't enough. Many days I had, I had, you know, 60, I had 70 inches that I could put out there and put it out on facts and I would sell it. And that's, that's how Stein got it. I think he was in San Diego at the time. And yep, I think uh, he was associated, associated with the Clippers is what I saw. Right. So we've been, we've been close ever since. Uh, I respect him a lot. I think it was in 98. You applied actually for the Nuggets GM job. I looking back then. Obviously, to me, you know, being a, a grade school, middle school kid growing up watching NBA and NBC, and to me, that would have been a higher outside of the tradition of what was kind of going on with how you would hire people. But obviously, you had all the connections and insight. Was there any thoughts you had if you would have actually gotten an interview and got that job, what that would have been? No, I really do think I could have done the job. You know, look, I'm not the first reporter who ever became a general manager or a president. Let's, let's start at the beginning. The Knicks, the Knicks president was ned irish ned irish brought you know the knicks into the garden had college basketball at its apex he was a reporter he was a sports reporter so i mean it started there you know the giants had the giants had a you know when they were winning championship or super bowls they had they had uh, an ex-reporter it's not it's not something that uh, is unique you know then it became the agents then the agents got into it you know and became you know, became, you know, like the guy at the Lakers, he was an agent. A lot of the guy in the, in the Knicks now, he's a, he was an agent. So whatever would have worked, uh, you know, I, I've said this before, Isaiah Thomas, when he was the president of, of the Knicks, offered me the GM job. He did offer it to me. I spoke to his, one of his superiors about it. And I really, I really wanted it. And uh, I had to meet with Dolan, the, the owner, and didn't go well in the first three minutes. And that was the end of that. I just walked out of the room. I, I walked out of the hotel, actually. But, um, you know, Isaiah said, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't have taken his shit for 10 minutes. You couldn't, what the hell? <laughs> but um, I, I, again, I truly believe I, I would have saved his job because he made a lot of bad decisions. Um, in the 97 finals, there's the YouTube video, you interviewing Carl Malone after the game. I want to kind of talk to you about your, your interview, you know, and how you were a very straightforward, asking the tough questions, the fearlessness to me. And again, this is just a, a bit of rant on my end, but today's world from the reporting side, and even from the coaching side, I feel like you get questions that are very kind of generic. 
You don't get real in-depth detailed asking the tough questions. And you get a lot of coach speak on the other side, which is obviously very boring and, you know, just kind of goes on. I saw Shane Beamer, the uh, head football coach of South Carolina the other day. I don't know if you saw that on the internet. They asked him what happened, you know, against Georgia and, and why they struggled. And he went on a rant about how they got all these five-star guys and they're really good. And that's why it was just, it was different than the normal, you know, right. here's, here's why we lost. And it, and it was actually very refreshing. So going right, back correct. to asking those tough questions and getting honest answers, I mean, do you think that's a thing of the past or do you think that's still something that can be done today? It's, it's more difficult now because uh, you don't have the access that, that I had. Uh, even when you work for a network, even when I worked for a network, I didn't have the access that people think I had. Uh, there were times that I would go, you know, cover the Bulls during the playoffs and NBC would be the first one allowed into the gym after practice. And Jordan and Pippen had already, you know, gone to the locker room. And, uh, you know, so now who are you going to interview? You had to, you know, let me see. Let me see if Will Perdue wants to say something. No, I'm not. No, I'm not in the mood to talk. I said, Will, <laughs> nobody really wants to talk to you. You know, like, are you kidding me? Turn me down. You know, thank God in those days for Phil Jackson and John Paxson, because they were they were always available. But but to get back to it, you know, then. The league changed a lot as far as just regular reporters, you know, trying to trying to interview people in the locker room. And you had Nick started it all with going with PR people going around with Mike, you know, with a tape recorder and putting it in your face as you're trying to ask some questions. You know, it's inhibiting the players not going to want to do it. Um, so very more, more difficult now than ever. Um, if I could if I you know talk to if I could get you know, I, I've done a few podcasts for the retired players. And, uh, you know, you get retired plays and they'll they'll tell you the truth. I mean, I, I had Jerry West and Oscar and Julius Irving give me great interviews and 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 give great answers to questions I didn't even ask. <laughs> yeah, I was, listening, I was listening the other night a little bit to that one you did with Oscar when you were talking about seeing him at the Garden when he was playing for Cincinnati. And um, right. Yeah, those were good. Right. Yeah. I mean, they, they would, I love that. I I'm back working for them now. I just uh, agreed to come back and do to do the same stuff. So I'm hoping to, to do my first podcast with Bob Cousy as coming back. But, um, you know, the Carl Malone thing you brought up, I, I don't, you know, it's funny. I, that interview meant nothing to me. I, I did the interview. I walked away from it. I never heard anything about it from anybody until, you know, 30 years later. I don't know. My son, my, who's he's in his 30s now, a few years ago, he said, you know, that interview you did with Carl Malone, like, what the hell? He says, everybody's talking about it on the, you know, on the internet and uh, YouTube, whatever. And I said, I'm trying to remember, like, oh, they were saying, you know, what do you, what Bessie trying to do, get punched out? And I didn't know what they were talking about. So I had to look at it again. And again, I don't, I don't think the questions were, were that terrible. You know, God bless Carl Malone for answering them. He could have not answered them. You know, they were, they were touchy. He could have said, you know, I just we just lost, you know, get out of my face. He could have easily said that. But he was always a guy that would he would answer a tough question. I knew that. And I and I I wasn't afraid to ask him something because of his size. Or I know he's not going to punch me. But, um, you know, I wasn't Isaiah Thomas. If I was Isaiah, he might have elbowed me. But but I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't worry about it. So anyway, years later now, years later, I saw him at the All-Star Game in New Orleans. And uh, I told him, I said, you know, everybody's making a big deal about this. He said, ah, you know, 
whatever. I said, you know, you and I, you and I should do a podcast together. He says, well, you know, you know where to find me. Oh, so, that would be good. Right. So he's one of the guys I'm going to go after for an interview. No question. For me, and the older I get, the more I respect kind of just telling it how it is. And I think, again, asking tough questions, but the right questions. And again, from his spot, he took it great as well. I also think like if you're a player and you're being asked tough questions or honest questions, like there's a sign of respect there because it's not like you're playing some game and trying to get something out of me. It's, it's really, this is what it is. That's, that's the way I took it too. Right. 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 Now, if I, I, I would have known better to ask John Stockman tough questions after a game, because he was very difficult, very difficult. I don't think he, he might've given me a one word answer. Really? No, maybe a two word answer. <laughs> and that would have been the end of that. But yeah. the call, call was always a good interview. And uh, so I wasn't worried about, I wasn't nervous talking to him after, you know, a big loss like that, you know, you know, a career changing loss, basically. Um, well, I, I am, I am upset that I didn't think to ask him about, didn't you see Jordan on the baseline? You know, how, how do you let him steal that ball from you on the baseline? You know? Yeah, that was huge. That's, that's still this day. I mean, not really talked about a ton. Well, they all talk about what he, you know, Jordan making the shot and pushing, you know, pushing where it was Russell. Yeah. Brian Russell, you know, it, did he really push him? It never can be proved, but they don't talk about Malone getting, getting the ball stolen on the baseline. Getting oh picked from God. behind. Yep. Behind. Yeah. Jordan's almost out of bounds. So I wish, I wish I had asked him that one. I'll ask him that when I, uh, when I talk to him on the podcast. <laughs> so I know from you were, distance. yeah, from a distance, right? <laughs> so I know, uh, you know, you were credited as given Larry Bird, kind of the Larry Legend tagline. And you obviously had a lot of nicknames for players. How did you come up with those? And was it because of you being a writer and being creative and witty that way that, that it helped you? Or was that just kind of a natural for you? You know, I, I, don't, I don't really. Larry Legend I worked on. I, I remember how it came about. And, uh, you know, I, I really worked on it. And then it just came to me. I'm writing a column about him. And, and I thought about Billy Idol. And I came to Larry Ledge and that's how it happened. And I just wish I had, uh, you know, I had made money off. I wish I had, uh, what, what do you call trademarked it? it and yeah. I wish I had trademarked. I wish I had trademarked a lot of my nicknames because people have done books on them. They've done podcasts. I'm not the, uh, documentaries. I, I got a call the other day from Kevin Durant's people. They're doing a, uh, a documentary on point guards in New York city. And the name of it is Point Gods, G-O-D-S. And the guy called me, you know, he wanted me to be interviewed. And uh, I said, well, you should want to interview me. I came up with that. I, I, that, was, that was Mark Jackson's nickname I gave him because he was, you know, religious guy, minister. And uh, whatever, the guy pissed me off. I didn't do it. But, you know, so they, I said, well, you can steal my, you know, you can steal my nickname for your title, but whatever. Guy wrote a book called The Jailblazers from Portland. That was my nickname. So I wish I wish that uh, I had trademarked a whole bunch of them. And uh, but they, you know, again, I had a lot of a lot of people. I, you know, people say, "How'd you come up with all that?" I had I had great writers next to me that would help me. Great contributors. I got a guy Frank Drucker who's been helping me for thirty years. To this day, he's gonna he's gonna be helping me with my my stuff with. Uh, the NBA again to use the retired players and, and uh, you know he's very clever and a lot of the nicknames were his 
So there you go. That's <laughs> you awesome. Know, like somebody asked me the other day, so wait a minute, you don't you don't write all your stuff? I said, wait a minute, does David Letterman write all this stuff? I mean, are you kidding me? Did yeah. Carson? Where's the, where's that expectation at, right? It's gotta go all the way or what? I mean Yeah, I mean I can't, it is impossible to come up with all the stuff I came up with by myself. Impossible. So I gladly give you know, I, I know who gave me every nickname. I, I know every where it came from. So, that would be a, that would be a good podcast alone from yourself, just explaining all the nicknames over the years. I mean, th- that would be interesting. Right. Well, my my ex-wife was called the Mysterious J. And that nickname came from David Wolf, again, who wrote Foul. He nicknamed her the Mysterious J. So for years, you know, her lines in the in my column would be the Mysterious J said. But then all the lines that I stole from her that didn't give her credit. <laughs> but she got that as part of the alimony. So <laughs> couple of questions to finish up here. Do you think we're going to see the NBA in Seattle again over the next five to seven years? I do. I mean, I've talked to, I talked to Stern when he was alive and, and uh, you know, and the present commissioner and he, they both said at the time, I maybe, maybe five years, they, they, they swore Seattle, Seattle's they're, they're going to put a team back in there one way or the other. Uh, you know, of course the price, the price has gone up a big time. It's tough to, you know, they don't really want to move teams. That's for sure. But I, I do believe they'll get an expansion team. You know, th- these are tough times right now. But I know, I know Adam Silver would love, love to have a team back. I, I hope I live long enough for Seattle to get a team back. I, I have such great, great experiences from there back, back in the day. You know, when they started, I was covering Bill Russell as the coach. You know, I, I had everything, that, everything good happened to me in Seattle except the fight in the toy store. <laughs> which which happened during the 96 finals that'll be a chapter in the book too <laughs> have you start have you started on that book at all yeah i started i've, I've done a lot of stuff but it's i'm so disorganized and uh, you know I can, I can imagine there's a lot to sift through even through your lifetime and covering that like what do you put in and what don't you put in yeah e- exactly what to leave in what to leave out as as uh what singer said that but uh yeah, so that that is the problem. If I didn't have so much to deal with, like my 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 guys down on Twitter are after me to you know do a compilation of my columns, and I tell them like, wait a minute, I've done thousands of columns. How could I possibly go through them and pick out? Like I wouldn't let anybody pick them out. I'd have to go through them and pick them out, and that means reading every one. And uh, you know, do you have those? Do you have those stored somewhere? I have them here in my apartment, but. I don't have them all. The ones in the 80s, 70s and 80s, I don't have. I have some of them, but unfortunately, I, I didn't make copies of those. But, uh, you know, starting starting in the uh, late 80s, uh, I definitely have most of them. Yeah. So in today's world, do you enjoy watching the game? I mean, do you still follow it closely? And, and if you do, what do you think needs to change in the game to continue to develop it moving forward? Yeah, I did watch the playoffs. I, I enjoyed a lot of it hardly watched a regular season game. I don't, I don't follow it like, like I did. I, you know, a friend of mine was saying, you know, when you, you're going to come back and write about the current NBA, I said, it's impossible. I said, because I, I swear, I don't, I don't know. Or I don't know. One third of the coaches, I never heard of them. 
the general managers. I never, one third, never heard of them. You know, I can't identify the assholes anymore. That, that's a problem if you got a column. That's a, that's a real problem. You got to go through that process again of learning who's an asshole. I don't like a lot about the game. I, you know, I'm an ABA guy, but, and, and I was an, I was like a, I was a three point shooter when I was playing. I had a really good outside shot and uh, I hate the way they play. You know, everybody's a three point shooter. You know, I, I wrote to a friend of mine today who was asking me, we, we used to play in the gym in the nineties and he works for the New York times. And uh, he, he was saying, man, you would put it up, you know, from wherever before it was fashionable. And I said, yeah, but now I realize why nobody liked playing with me <laughs> because I'm watching these guys today. You know, who, who wants to watch somebody dominate the ball or come down off the court, come down off a break, pull up from three and a half, not from three, beyond three, four, you know, unless you're Curry and Clay Thompson and, and you know, Dame, Dame Lillard, you know, you know, there were a number of guys who can, you know, shoot the shit out of the ball, but everybody thinks they're a three-point shooter and I, I hate it you know they'll take they'll go in and they have a layup and they'll dish dish, dish it out for a three-pointer turn the channel now you know i'm done you know a lot of the rules i don't like they're still you know that euro step is bullshit you know i'm mean, to walk you know they, they allow that moving picks they, um, they never, that, that, that's never. my big that's my biggest thing next to you know obviously getting extra steps but the moving pick it's like and then it gets called a couple times every game, but it's like it could have been called every single time. Well, every could call it every time. You know, when we played, played in the gym or outside, you said a moving pick on me, I'm going to elbow you in the head. I mean, it was like it was a definite because those moving picks can hurt you. They can break your arm. You know, they can yep. put, you, put your hip out of joint. So, you know, there's none of that. Those referees can be standing right next to the guy he's moving. What the hell? There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that you know that hopefully one day they'll clean up. Whatever you know, I I'll pay more attention this year. I did like the playoffs. You know, a lot of players I love. You know, I I could watch Curry play every day. Clay Thompson, I'm, I'm praying that he comes back and he's fully healthy. And you know, I love watching those two guys together. And but there are a lot of players I like. I love. I fell in love with Trey Morant. I, I a lot of a lot of good young players. Would I like to be their teammate? I don't know. Some of them can pass, and they and they do pass. But I, I, I Harden played a passed a lot more with the Nets than he did with Houston. Even though he averaged a lot of assists with Houston, how could you play with that guy? He's only going to give it up to you as an afterthought if he's covered by two people. I, you know, I'll be very honest with you. I, I did not. I had my top seventy-five, right? I, I have a vote. I didn't vote for him. I, I am not voting for a guy who I can't, who I find nauseating to watch. So I'm sure he'll make it. It's not going to be my vote that's going to cost them. Yeah, no, I agree with you, though, too. I mean, your, your point is spot on. I thought with Brooklyn, he was a lot better. I mean, he was moving it. And obviously, again, you could say, OK, Durant and Kyrie and, and whoever else is out there. Right. But I, I thought he was a lot better in that mindset than he was in Houston, too. And, 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 you know, Durant was a huge reason why, because they only played 13 games together. So you really don't know what would happen because Kyrie can over dribble too. And uh, Durant, Durant's a hell of a, you know, ball handler. And I don't know, Durant, Durant's another one. I could watch him play any, any day of the week. LeBron, same thing. I mean, there's this probably 20 guys that I would actually pay to see, you know, guy, yeah. Maverick, you know, I love watching Joker. Guys, the guys who pass, the guys who make teammates better, those are my guys. 
Well, I appreciate you sitting down, taking the time, telling stories. I mean, this is this is awesome. Great. I could listen to this all night long. I really do think you need to either try to finish that book or get a podcast and just tell story episodes because I think that thing would blow up the internet. Just going back to some of the things in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, whatever it is. I mean, I think you get a, a lot of information that I think a lot of people would love to hear. I just gave it all to you, though. That's true. That's true. This is like the preview. <laughs> 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 I've given a lot. I've given a lot of my meat away. Let me tell you. That's all right. No, I greatly appreciate it. And it kind of takes me down memory lane with some of these stories in the nineties, you know, growing up as a kid and watching the NBA and NBC on Sundays and stuff like that too. So greatly appreciate all of you done for the game and everything like that in general. Well, it was a great interview. Thank you so much and uh, have a great rest of the night. All right. Thanks.